0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: Trick Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and the track you've just heard is Land of Giants by Druva Aliman, which might give you a hint about the first interview that you'll hear in this evening show, as I'm talking to director Anders Walter about his film of the graphic novel I Kill Giants. Later in the show, I'll also be talking to the cast and crew of the new British horror film Court, and to Bart Simpson, no not that one, but the director of a new documentary called Brasilia, Life After Design. Bart is also the producer of some terrific documentaries that have come out over the last 15 years, including The Corporation and Mobius Redux, and we'll be talking about those films as well. First though, here's my interview with Anders Walter. Anders is the Oscar-winning director of the short film Helium, which he'll be expanding into a feature over the next couple of years, and the Oscar-nominated short film Nine Metres. His first feature, I Kill Giants, is an adaptation of the graphic novel by Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura, and tells the tale of a young girl who goes out into the woods by the coast to hunt and track down giants who are endangering the local populace in a movie set in Long Island, but actually filmed in Ireland, which gives the movie a dreamlike quality. Obviously approaching something that was initially a graphic novel, it felt very much like you brought your own voice to it. And I wondered, as someone from Denmark, whether there was some kind of interest in local legends about trolls and giants um, from your own folklore that you felt you were bringing to the project.
2: Uh, actually not but, but, <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> damn it I mean what was most surprising to me of course first of all I didn't want to make my first feature in America mm. uh, I, you know I, I really wanted to go back to Denmark after we won an Oscar for for a short film mm. but my agents, of course wanted me to stay I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to do a film that felt like me and didn't you know didn't have my kind of clear um, print on it um But then, I Kill Giants came around, and it really felt like a, you know, a subject matter that that uh, that you know, it it had a resemblance to Helium and some of the other short films I have worked on. So, so I fell in love, and of course, then I went back and said, okay, let's try and finance this one. So there are definitely some themes in there that that um, I. That I personally felt that I knew something about, and I had a very specific idea about how to to translate it mm. into a, into a feature film. The yeah. strange thing is, my my background is actually uh, I come from uh, I have worked as an illustrator, and and I have done graphic novels for many years ah, before okay. I started directing. Hmm. Um, so you know, all the all the stars was positioned right, or if that's do you say that in, in English? Yes, yeah, the stars uh, are aligned. Exactly that it felt like that because with that with my specific background in graphic novels and, and then the, with this with the similar theme in I Kill Giants that was also um, strongly present in, in Helium. It, mm. it just felt like a a perfect project where where I actually believed that I somehow could manage to to keep my own voice and um and, and make it feel like a movie that I, I did.
1: Mm. Well, yes, I was But I was, no
2: trolls, sorry. no inspiration from Danish folklore or, or, <laughs> or uh, the, the old sagas or anything like that. Actually, not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But no,
1: I, I was going to say it's almost uncanny actually looking at your um, short films, Helium deals with a young boy who's very ill and a doctor encouraging him to actually in, indulge in his fantasies to help him recover and yeah. then with nine yeah. nine meter you have a boy who's worried about his mother's illness and trying to crack this uh, kind of long jump yeah. record so it, it, even if um you hadn't done an adaptation of i kill giants it feels like your first feature might have been on a similar topic anyway
2: I think you I think you're so right and also now with a couple of other projects that I'm, I'm developing uh, there's definitely a, a red uh, red thread that goes through all of them and um, which is rather bizarre because I'm not quite sure why I'm hmm. so attracted to to children and teenagers and and how they use fantasy to deal with certain certain difficult um Things in life, and you know how they use fantasy almost as some, you know, as as medicine to mm-hmm. ease pain or to go through a period of grief. Obviously, you could think that I myself have have been in such a situation when I was young, and and therefore have a strong relation to that, to that way of thinking or living. But but uh, it's also very far from the truth. I had a very nice upbringing. Nobody died. I didn't have to escape into fantasy worlds. <laughs> I did that actually but not because i was escaping anything just out of pure you know uh, enjoyment of of creating my own world and and um, and so on so of course i i i just have a tremendous kind of i wouldn't say respect but i just think it's a, a magical and a wonderful gift uh, that you have when you're young mm. uh, that you can actually managed to build these parallel universes and, and actually believe so much and then they almost become real. I think it's rather beautiful. And it, of course, in I Kill Giants, it, it goes to an extent where it's almost hurting, which I also thought was interesting because she, of course, takes it so far that you start to worry for her. And um, so that was the, the, the new aspect of I Kill Giants. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm because I, you didn't ask me that, but I imagine you wanted to ask me if 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 there was something in my own life. Uh... <laughs>
1: no, not necessarily. But I mean, you know, yeah. even looking at your comics, um, projects like Solas, uh, which have yeah. a young uh, protagonist, obviously, you've always been interested in trying to get into the minds of young characters, and then combining yeah. their narratives with um, fantasy worlds. I guess. Gives a new way of looking at reality through the lens of uh, fantasy.
2: Yes, I mean uh, f- exactly, and, and that's that's you know a gift that I think we obviously tend to lose mm. as, as we grow older. Uh, that said, of course, in my business, you still do meet a lot of crazy people who, who still have a, a very pure access to <laughs> to their imagination and, and something they. Uh, you know, if you're a director or a screenwriter or someone working and creating fiction, obviously you still have a great access to, to fantasy and, and, you know, you know how to imagine certain things, but still, mm. uh, you don't have that. I don't think you believe it in the, in the same way as, as when you're a kid. And I think that's why it's so interesting with, 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 with children mm. because their belief system is totally different. and um, and they make it real. It feels real for them. Mm. And, and I think that's why it's, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily think, I mean, let's say a 40 year old man like myself, <laughs> yes, I can come up with a, a, a fantastic world. I can do imaginary worlds. But I would never believe in, in someone who is 40. Uh, I would never believe them to actually live in that world mm. uh, except for the pure, you know, for, for pure fun or. Not out of a, a, a necessity to uh, to survive something. Um, I guess we we choose to do other things when we grow old. We get mm. drunk or we <laughs> take medicine or you know we we try and kind of escape those heavy feelings or we try to escape if if people are in grief or um, mm. by doing all kinds of destructive things. And also um, no, I think it's very in- inspiring. Uh, that kids have this ability.
1: No, definitely. I mean, and it's interesting, you know, you're saying as a 40-year-old man, it's hard to get into the minds of children. But at the same time, obviously, as a director, when you're working with child actors, you would have to uh, motivate them to react against, presumably sometimes, an empty environment where there actually isn't a monster there, but they have to pretend that there is. Was that a challenge or did it come naturally?
2: Uh, it's, it's very. I worked with with kids who are six or seven, like the boy who plays the lead in, in Helium, and then mm-hmm. of course with Madison Wolf, She's a thirteen-year-old girl. Uh, I think I believe she she turned fourteen when, when we shot the film last year or two years ago, mm. and that's two different worlds. With a guy like uh, Tele, who who played the the lead in Helium, you definitely have to kind of construct. Uh, an extra parallel world just for him on, mm. on his premises. So let's say, if, you know, you're shooting a scene, that scene where he walks into the airship in the end, obviously that's, that's all shot on a green screen mm. and there's nothing, nothing that can motivate him or, um, they really have to create an or, a, a world for him to believe in. So f- for instance, for that scene, I, I asked him, uh, I, I, you know, two days before we shot it, I kind of asked him to to think about um, what the most important thing for him was when he was going to board the airship. Uh, so on the day when we shot it, he came up to me just before we shot it, and we had that conversation, and he said. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm really looking forward to this, and uh, because you know, and also I want to be the first one who who goes into the airship, so I'll get the best seat, and uh, you know I'll sit next to the window, so I get the best view as we as we take off. So over those two days before we shot it, just by asking a couple of questions, his whole uh, thought process started, and he managed to kind of build up his own fantasy world. So I think on the day when we shot it, he was totally there. Mm. Everything was in front of him. And that's difficult just to explain in two minutes. If, if let's say, if you wait and just do it on the day. So by actually building this world with him, he had all these beautiful thoughts about what he wanted and what he, why he wanted to go on board and what his main goal was. So that's that's one way of working with very small kids. With mm. Madison, she was out of this world impressive. <laughs> she, she uh, that was more like actually working with a grown up. Mm. She showed up and had, had a very Defined and, and and thoughtful idea about how to go from A to B with the whole arc of the character, and so I would pay a lot of attention. You know, when when a 13 year old girl comes on a, on a set and sits down with you and 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 they start to talk about all of these wonderful things, you really want to pay attention. Um, and and she was just impressive. She had such specific notes about how to do certain things. Mm. That, that says, of course, you're still directing her and, and turning certain buttons, but it's um, just a different experience. And, but still, I would say even with a 13-year-old girl, of course, they have an intellect and they can, you can have a conversation with them. But they're still kind of pure. There's something pure about them. And you see it also, it's typical, you know, when you do first, second or third takes with kids or teenagers. It's just so pure. That I hardly want to direct them because you want all of their pureness before you start to 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 put too many words into their head. Mm. Um, so with teenagers, for me, it's more like just you know come on the set and then give it a shot because I know you have some some feelings and thoughts about it and you don't want to take that away because as soon as you start to talk about your own ideas, you will never ever get at first. Uh, you know that 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 um take of them doing exactly what they feel like, and mm. it might just be the most wonderful thing you can get.
1: I suppose as well with this project, the actions that Madison's character undertakes, sort of carving runes into words and leaving traps of rotting flesh hanging from lampposts and then sort of covering leaves in, in strange red potions, going through all of those rituals in a way feels like an evocation of the creatures you can't see anyway. So presumably that makes it easier for her as an actress to kind of feel the magic that her character is involved in.
2: Yeah. No, for for sure. I I she got totally into this world, and uh, I I really brought her into the production offices very early on to kind of introduce her to all of these wonderful things that she uses to, mm. you know, bait uh, bait buckets and all you know all of that you know her whole trap system made her familiar with all the stuff that I wanted to be part of her world, and of course that's that's when you start to build the character together. Mm introducing all of these things and the more things you bring in and of course also with the wardrobe that all helps for any actor uh, grown up or young and old to to get into a certain mood and a tone uh and and also i you know we should, most of this film is shot on location mm. very little is shot on a studio and uh, with a, and even when we were on the studio a lot and we shot the last big titan fight we had a an exact replica of the beach where we shot in Ireland, mm. uh, built on the on the soundstage. So she was never really only acting towards a green screen. Of course, with the tight you had to imagine in the end. For for instance, like I insisted on doing, uh, which is obviously very old school these days, but with the the harbingers that you see in the forest, and also then later when she comes out of the comic book store and chases uh, or escapes. Sophia and she goes into the back alley and those strange creatures come at her and talk to her. That happens twice in the film. Mm. That's that's a physical build, um, and she got scared. They were really <laughs> really scary uh, on the day. They they were really intimidating. Um, so, which I prefer. I think that's that's what you want to do. I mean, obviously it's difficult these days because so much is CGI. Mm.
1: But also the the location where you were shooting the film in Ireland, it really feels like a sort of liminal space. That the days you shot on, it's always quite hazy, and you can never quite see the horizon. There's always mist just beyond the trees, and that gives it a yeah. dreamlike quality as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I I really love. Really Maybe strange to say about your own film, but I'm really pleased with the look we, we achieved for the film, and also obviously a lot of credit. The, or my wonderful Danish DP, but um, who, who really we both like to shoot in, in natural light. Mm. And of course, we were also when you're so much outside, you're also very much depending on the weather. And shooting in Ireland, I kind of expected to get a totally grey film, <laughs> uh, but we did we did have some beautiful sunsets and sunrises mm. that, that also um, has a certain quality to everything. No, for for me, I wanted to make. Since we ended up shooting in, in, uh, not on Long Island, on location, we had to move to Ireland and Belgium. And I think that helped to make it feel like this strange world of of its own. Mm. Obviously, it does feel like some northern east coast, New England, Long Island, kind of, kind of, because we mixed it up with some shots. We actually actually went to Long Island and shot some pickup, uh, small town footage. But uh, yeah, I wanted that kind of timeless feeling and I wanted it to make, you know, that oils should kind of be um, almost not a magical place because I wanted the film to feel grounded and, mm. and realistic. Uh, but I really liked the idea about that you couldn't place it exactly mm. in one spot. It just became very universal and timeless. Of course, you you can, you you, you, you do automatically go to certain uh, certain places in the states when you see this environment, but it's it's it has a, a strange co- kind of quality to it because the the hillsides, the hills where the house is, is a little bit higher than you normally expect for for Long Island. And so there are certain things where you do lose track on, on both time and location, which I like. Um, so I actually I, I was. Ha- you know, it turned out to work, I think, in our favour, that we were forced to go to and shoot this somewhere else and mm. not on location on Long Island.
1: Mm. Indeed. I read in another interview that your first knowledge of the project was being given the screenplay. As it was adapted from a graphic novel, did you make a point of not reading the comic until you were well into production, so that, for example, Numura's designs wouldn't be an influence on what you wanted to achieve?
2: No, the story is that I I got the screenplay sent from my agents and -hmm. then I fell totally, madly, deeply in love. And I called them and said, "Okay, I'm coming back. I want to do this. And then they said, you know, it's based on a graphic novel. No, I don't know that. (laughs) So I I, I ran down to my local comic book pusher and got myself a copy. And five minutes later, I was back and I read it. And then I was even more in love with the whole concept and called my agents again and said, Okay, this is really good stuff.
3: <laughs>
2: okay. Let's let's do this. So I was very inspired by, by Ken's artwork for quite some time. And also in the very early stages I felt like there was something to be more directly inspired by in this it was very it's obviously a very Expressive kind of drawing style mm. that is used for the graphic novel. But the more that that I got into it, and the more that I fell in love with the characters, this is a character piece for me. I always pitched it as a character drama, and not as a big adventure film. Obviously, as you know, I, I, for me, we have a wonderful poster, but the poster is is totally bullshit <laughs> uh, In in terms of what film that yeah. we, we're giving to people, and you feel that now on IMDb and and other sites where people are uh, giving audiences great, you know, people are pissed off. I, I mean, a lot of people are, are totally in love with the film, but you also have a lot of people who expected a full-on action movie with a mm. girl who was slaying giants mm. because of the poster. But that's another story. But so, so I really fell in love with the characters more and more. and mm. I, Obviously, I fell in love with the emotional impact, the potential emotional impact of the film. So I, I kind of, because of that, I, I, I moved away from the more expressive, uh, cartoonish style of, of the graphic novel and, and decided to make it much more grounded. So, But as soon as I decided to go that route, uh, then I kind of put the graphic novel behind. Mm. Uh, and I didn't really bring it back mm. um, before we, were, we 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 had finished doing the film.
1: Sure. You said that um, your agent sent you the screenplay. After um, Helium won the Oscar for Best Short Film, were you inundated with offers for new projects, or did it take a while for you to find the right project to do as your first feature?
2: I was. I, they did send me quite a lot of screenplays, but mm. I was so startled. You know, I was back in Denmark developing a feature with the Danish Film Institute, and I was totally sure because I won that Oscar that they would greenlight me. But mm. then we actually got uh, we got a no in the end. Huh. And that was the only project that I had here in Denmark. And in Denmark, you can't really do films without uh, the government funding. There's no private capital, really. It's too small a smaller country. Mm. So all of a sudden, and, but uh, almost the same week, the Nigel Giants came to me. I probably read maybe 10 screenplays mm. before that. All, I mean, all good screenplays, really is solid stories and, and, and great screenwriting. But I didn't fall in love. And you have to fall in love, I think for you to spend two and a half years or three <laughs> years or whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had read great material before I Killed Giants. But what it, I mean, I, it wasn't like, it wasn't sent to me in, in, in the sense where people were just asking me to come on and direct this. Mm. It was sent to me for me to read, and then I could, you know, maybe if I liked it, I could give my pitch. And So it took a couple of, three or four months for me to convince Uh, Chris Columbus's people, Mm. 1492 pictures, that I was the right guy for the job. So I think the Oscar only... What the Oscar did for me was that it got me on certain people's radar and I got into the meeting rooms. But from, from that point on, you're basically on the same level as everybody else. You have to convince people that you have the right version for the film and you have to convince them that you can actually attract uh, a cast you have to convince them that you can attract the financiers to come and give a first time Danish feature director you know a lot of money I mean so there's all these things that are not easy and so it all took some years first Mm -hmm. it took 3 or 4 months to convince them that I should get the job and then another 2 years uh, going around Hollywood with the producers and then ending up in Europe before Mm -hmm. we, we, we got the money Gosh.
1: Did you find that um, being a comic book creator helped you become a filmmaker in any respect? I mean, presumably, at the very least, the practice of drawing comics isn't dissimilar to the practice of drawing storyboards.
2: I felt like, when I look back now, having done four short films and a feature,
1: and
3: mm.
2: and, and, and also a feature that you know was a bit CGI-demanding, um, I experienced on the set... That also just doing short films that I have such an easy time. <laughs> you no, know, not directing. You know, but but I have an easy time coloring. You know, scenes with with pictures and images, and I know exactly. And I think that has to do with me doing graphic novels and storyboard. Mm. I know exactly how to. To cover a scene, and 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 obviously also one thing is to cover a scene, one thing another thing is to make it interesting. But that feels so familiar to me, and such a natural extension of of having done what I have done over the last many years. I was always very afraid of and very concerned of my talents in in terms of being able to control actors and you know the whole you could say human aspect of being on a set. Mm. Being an illustrator, and most illustrators, you would probably find them rather introverted, and people who who like to tell stories with pictures, for sure, but also people who decided to sit by themselves for many hours and do that, mm. with with as little influenced by other people. Uh, and I I was 33 before I actually uh, managed to to get find the courage to go on a, on a film set and direct actress, real actors, in my first short film. Hmm. Uh, and I had that dream for many years. I think I wrote a screenplay when I was twenty one. So at least for twelve or thirteen years, there was this kind of vibrating dream in the back of my mind that I wanted to direct one day. But I simply I didn't have the balls to do it. Hmm. Um, but then the but then of course being honest there, then I felt very comfortable with, with the whole aspect of, of storytelling with images. Still a little bit concerned about the actors, but then I, I soon fell very much in love with exactly that discipline of being with actors and being with children and you know talking with them and getting all of these wonderful gifts that you get from, from actors who does things that you could never imagine yourself. And they inspire you and you inspire them and all of a sudden you sit there behind the monitor and everything explodes. Yeah. That I never experienced. I did that, of course, as an illustrator, but in a different way. So, uh, so I was more like, "Why did I wait till I was 33 to actually go on a set?" And now realizing that this is really something I, I like. This craft—it's not something to be afraid of. I really feel like it's a natural environment for me. So, yeah, mm. it, I don't know why it took so long.
1: Well, certainly coming from the comic book profession into directing, your here, for want of a better word, Anders Morgenthaler, who's also Danish, used to work in comics and has done both live action and animation. Um, Someone like uh, the creator of Persepolis, Majansa Satrapi, who went from doing autobiographical comics to sort of crazy serial killer films. And then we might think of people like um, Enki Bilal, who's obviously a sci-fi comic creator and director. Yeah. Um, who did a film based on one of his own comics. Even someone like Joan Sfar, who has worked in animation, in comics, um, and in film. So there does seem yeah. to be increasingly a crossover between the two media, and I wonder if it's just because the film industry is becoming more visually literate that they realise not only should we adapt comics, but maybe actually talk to people from the world of comics because they know how to express things in a visual manner.
2: No, I think you're right, and and when you look at the movies that, are, I mean, let's go back to the '70s. Not many movies were were depending on, you know, fantastic uh, visual storytelling. Uh, I mean, if you look at Hollywood, for instance, all the, all of the movies that are inspired or or translated from graphic novels, they're quite heavy mm-hmm. on on imagery, and they're also quite technically heavy. And the whole technical aspect is not for for all directors. If we just talk about all of the Marvel movies, Mm. that really demands a certain... uh, Obviously, you have to be a human kind of person to deal with actors, but you also have to be very technical and you have to know exactly what you can get away with and what you can do in post and how you can tweak and, and, and how you can do certain things. And that, I think, comes very easy for anyone who has worked as an illustrator, or a graphic novel, uh, or a graphic designer, or mm. because you used to, you, you know about light, you know about colors, you know about... There's so many things that you don't think maybe translate that easy to film, but it, all, of, all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's very much the same process. It's just, instead of still still images, it's just moving images, but still the process of coming up with... And also the conceptual idea about building a world from scratch, As a cartoonist, you basically built from white paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I do think for for specific movies, I don't think this might be the case for uh, Susanne Bia film or Lone Siafi, you know, talking about a movie, talking about, you know, my other Danish colleagues who who, who I think is more into the drama and not so much about uh, visual storytelling. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those specific directors, I think. I know what those two. They kind of just. They have a photographer, and basically the DP is the one who who visually directs the film, and they only, you know, interested in which is also a way of making films. They're interested in the tension and the drama and the actors and the performances, and um, mm. which is, I mean, by the end of the day, I rather see a film that is that has that. Priority, <laughs> because I think any good film has to spring from great characters and great acting. I mean, with with a lot of these films, like the big Marvel superhero films, you all they also start now to bring in people from production. You know, you see production designers, people mm-hmm. who are used to visually building concept worlds. There have been a couple of production designers who have directed, you know, major films and mm-hmm. have that background. Uh Ridley Scott, of course, was a production designer, mm. uh, art, art trained. Uh, so there are these people who, and yeah, and even, you know, Ridley Scott, of course, is also a great storyboard artist. Mm. And, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's definitely an advantage, uh, I, I think, coming from that background. But you could also, because you can also find people who then I think, too much into just the visual aspect mm. of, of filmmaking. And, and they forget about uh, great characters and character development and, and they don't know how to direct people on, on a set and they sit and hide behind their monitor. <laughs> and that, I don't necessarily think, benefits uh, any good story. So it's a balance, of course.
1: Indeed. Brilliant. Okay. Um, thank you very much.
2: All right, you're so welcome. Cheers. Good talking to you.
1: Anders Walters films Nine Meter and Helium are available to watch on Vimeo, and the film I Kill Giants is doing the rounds of cinemas at the moment and will be available on VOD and Shiny Disc in early May. To find out more information about the film, please go to kaleidoscopehomeentertainment.com. And if you'd like to know more about the original graphic novel of I Kill Giants, you can hear my interview with Joe Kelly, recorded at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, as a Panel Borders podcast on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. To close the first half of this evening's show, and give you a flavour of the second half, here's Samba Drome by Ivo Moreles and Funken Latter. You've just heard was Samba Drome by Evo Morales and Funk and Latter. As later in the show, I'll be talking to director Bart Simpson about his film Brasilia. Before that, though, you'll hear my interview with the cast and crew of Court, a new British horror film that comes across as Straw Dogs, written by John Wyndham. In the Q&A, which was recorded at the London Sci Fi Film Festival, I'm talking to producer April Pearson. Actor Reuben Crow, co-writer Alex Francis, and director Jamie Patterson, who'll be the first voice you hear. To give you a flavour of the film, here's an extract from the trailer. Right, come here.
4: Off to school now. Bye,
5: bye, mum. Bye. We've had an idea for another story. There's something going on up on the moors near us. The army's up to something. It looks like they're setting up a new base. I doubt it's got anything to do with the missing woman. Uh
4: Uh-oh, here they come. Can I help you? We've come from Kentry Moor. We have questions for you. Please, sit down.
5: Those people in there, are seriously weird.
4: You are Mr. and Mrs. Costello?
5: Yes, of course.
4: Did you copulate? on the moors.
5: Is this some kind of sick joke?
4: She has killed already, she will kill again. Now I will finish my question.
0: If we answer your questions, will you please leave our house?
4: You never said we would leave.
5: I, I directed the movie.
0: Mine's easy too, I'm April and I'm marrying him.
5: <laughs> yeah, not your involvement in the movie? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that and the dribbling.
5: <laughs> um, and my
1: name is Reuben Crowe and I was playing Andrew. I'm Alex, uh, one of the producers, and I co In his introduction to the film, um, Louis mentioned straw dogs, and that certainly seems to be one of the influences. But also, it seems to tap into that sort of sinister vein of English surrealism that ranges from the bed sitting room to the League of Gentlemen
5: you say those two things were um, <laughs> influential? I would, yeah. I, uh, very, I haven't seen anything that you just referenced. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was, oh, was, was like, oh God. he's in the zeitgeist? Yeah, I mean, when we set out to, when I was brought on to do this movie, I kind of read the script and what. yeah, I just felt like um, I wanted to make a movie that was Stepford Wives-esque, early carpenter, Halloween. movie that was like, um, all about tone and wasn't necessarily about uh, gore or violence or, or torture porn or this sort of new wave of horror that's happened over the last 10 years which I love and I'm a, I'm a big fan of films like Hostel which are wicked and then there was Hostel 2 and then there was Hostel 3 and then there was Saw and Saw 1 and 2 and 7 and 9 and 10 or whatever and I kind of I felt this script would have worked if they had made it in the 70s um, so kind of those references you say um, they're great Uh, for me it was yeah it was early Carpenter and it it was was Stepford Wives and it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers and and those sort of movies that were really all about atmosphere and tone and I was very aware when we did this movie that it was going to potentially upset people because we're now a Netflix generation where you're used to seeing everything uh, and everything is put in in front of you Um, no and I think that and I think you know the end of the movie is what it is and I'll be honest with you we actually had a version of this movie where you saw an alien we had a little tiny little alien that we blew up scare it and it walked around and everything and it was really cool and it looked good but at the end of the day your imagination is going to be way more powerful than anything i can show you especially if i had made this movie back in the 70s maybe if i had a show an alien it would have been more impactful but nowadays we have literally seen anything so what's in your head of what Mr. and Mrs. Blair are underneath that skin is very different to what's in your head to your head your... And I kind of, I like that. I like that we're all going to leave tonight with a different Mr. and Mrs. Blair. And I, whether or not, you know, that, that works in not, I don't
1: know. Have I even answered your question? I don't uh, even... Yeah, you're in the ballpark. Oh, I'll maybe. take that. Um, and, and so setting it in the 70s was a mixture of it kind of aids the plot because they don't have mobile phones where we communicating, but also because there is that sort of sense that in the 70s there was still the possibility that there were things going on in military bases in Britain that we didn't know about.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'll throw it to Alex in a minute, but I mean, for me it was, I mean, the 70s was the stranger danger period, it was, Mm -hmm. we didn't have iPhones, we didn't have, that movie really wouldn't work if, nowadays, and there was a version of it which was set present day, Mm -hmm. but we just thought, you know, come on, everyone's got a phone, everyone's got an iPad, there'd be something around for them to communicate to the outside world, so it just didn't feel like it would necessarily work, and be believable even though it's a movie about aliens it still didn't feel like it would be necessarily believable then so i think yeah. um, no so let uh, will i think you wore that shirt mate get up on stage and show everyone that shirt that you wore and come and so will was our uh, art department on the movie and he basically turned that house into a modern from a modern house into a 70s house and made it uh, come to life and we had a great costume designer and you know we Originally when we was doing the movie as well, I wanted to use a lot more Zooms, so, you know, going in like they used to do, except for why was famous mm. for it. But we kind of, we shot this movie in 11 days as well. So it was, we were limited, you know, April was in the makeup chair for four hours a day with her eye. Um, and it was just, it was, uh, to create that world, I feel was difficult, but I had an amazing team around me. Uh, and yeah, they, they did it all. They made me look good, which is great.
1: Thanks, Will. <laughs> April, were there any particular movies that inspired you for the uh, oh, announcing no. and the gurgling? <laughs>
0: no, that was all only... me. Uh-huh. Oh no, genuinely no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but certainly you know that sort of strangeness that you were evoking with your performance, being kind of unworldly and also innocent. Um, did that just come from like your imagination? No, I think
0: obviously. Um, Kean and I sat down at the beginning of the shoot and went, "Okay, so how how do we do this? Um, How do you play an alien who hasn't felt anything? As in physical touch, like how heavy is everything in the world? What does it feel like when they touch humans? Do they feel heat? Do they feel like normal skin? And obviously a lot about performing um, human emotion is that you can portray someone else's feelings. And when you're playing someone who doesn't do that, I mean, the great thing about this screening particularly and being here at a sci-fi festival is that you can sit amongst people who are laughing. <laughs> I mean, we, the, we screened this film, the first time it ever played in front of an audience was in Portugal with subtitles, and you know, there was, it, there was an enjoyment in the room, but the fact <laughs> that people were laughing at the first sight of Mr. and Mrs. Blair, trying to drink tea and thinking that it was just that humans drank it to get hot mm. it was great and it really felt like you know we'd done kind of a good job because yeah. actually it is a bit alien that was inverted comment um, because you know we've, we've never experienced anything like that before so mm. when we were kind of like learning how to play these people it was literally it's, they're learning it at the same time so um, yeah it was really weird it was really. I think one of the first things that Kean asked Alex, actually, or uh, maybe it wasn't Alex, but we were definitely asking like, how do these aliens have sex? That was like one of. Wasn't that one of the first things that he That's asked? Her? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, yeah, we like to so know are. our backstories as actors.
0: Um, but yeah, it was like it, honestly, you know, playing people who got no point of reference is a really weird thing. Mm. I mean, I was just thing for most of it. So. The backstory was there.
1: How much of that came from the script and the directing and how much of it was you sort of workshopping those ideas and realising what was successful and what wasn't in terms of sort of being alien?
0: Um, I think the first time that I knew that I was kind of being really scary and alien-like was when one of... I think it was one of Jeremy's friends brought their children to the set. Um, That was not a good idea. Uh, It happened to be on the day that I was crawling around on the floor and then screaming. Um, And that was my own scream. And the the little boy that was with them cried his eyes out. And had to leave and be taken away by his parents. And I don't know if Jeremy quite sort of threatened them as to what uh, that was going to be. It's still
5: with the lawyers at the moment. Sure, sure <laughs> should probably talk about it now. But, um, <laughs> but yeah,
0: I think that was the first time where I thought, oh, okay, um, this isn't this isn't just me coming to work. <laughs> this is me being quite weird and free.
1: Um, in terms of the production, obviously, if you're making. A low-budget British uh, sci-fi movie, keeping it within the environment <laughs> of the house kind of makes that whole process easy, um, as well as I guess closing the curtains in case anyone walks past. Um, but also, it means that you have to think of all sorts of interesting angles to shoot the house within, or just make it interesting uh, in order to light it when you only have sheets of light. You have to worry about how much is coming to the camera. So I guess it's a balance between making it interesting, but also making it low budget, which must be a sort of a, a constant battle in a way throughout
5: the production. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if people know the budget, but the budget was $840 million, So it was a <laughs> No, it was, I think, firstly, Paul, who shot the movie. Um, he, I've done uh, three movies with him now. He's an incredible DP. Um, he's so technical and he knows everything. He's very fast. He's, um, he's absolutely wonderful. I think with this movie, we... We wanted it to breathe a little bit. I see a lot of horror movies that are cut, kind of like a music video, like mm. bang, 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 bang. There's like four, five, six sequences that just that just play out as one in this film. Uh, I think we got away with that because we had such wonderful actors. Um, we knew Moritz, who's in here, was going to do an incredible score um, for the movie, and I just I that was kind of something that we wanted to do. It was we didn't spend days and days planning our lighting sequences you know we had half a day prep with the actors you know some of them didn't meet till day one it's indie filmmaking that i'm sure there's plenty of filmmakers in here who kind of know how it is this was kind of lucky in the fact that everyone just seemed to click everyone mm-hmm. knew, knew their characters and it, it just seemed to work um julius who's also in here did a fantastic job um lighting the movie as well it was just it was just a good crew it was mm-hmm. it was no it was a great crew it wasn't a good crew. it was a great crew uh, and they kind of made this film something
1: uh, I think kind of special. Mm. Well in a way it probably helped if the actors playing humans didn't meet the actors playing aliens until right at the start to you know help freak them out. <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll go with that one that's, <laughs> that's why we did it it wasn't because we couldn't afford to film
5: <laughs> on trains um, no that yeah that was kind of it and it was with a movie like this it is kind of it is it is hectic you know we're shooting 10 pages a day and it is is a little bit mad but it like every now and again, just start, it kind of works, and I think it works for this.
1: Both of the roving mics seem it to goes. have died. Well, no, <laughs> I was going to say, if anyone in the audience uh, has any questions uh, for anyone on stage, uh, shout. Sorry? How long did the production take from start to finish? So we took
5: uh, we took eleven days to shoot it, and then we took six months on the edit and turnaround. Give so, or we'll take yeah, six months to edit it, grade it, sound mix it, do the score. Deliver it, um, so yeah. But only eleven
1: days to shoot.
3: <laughs> 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 the question
1: was about balancing the tone, the balancing horror and comedy and, and sci-fi and tension.
5: Yeah, um, I think the, the with the movie, I mean, you can certainly say the script. But when we were directing it, it was kind of the things that was in the script were funny. So it was kind, of, and it was the, like April said, it was so nice to watch it with you guys, who kind of appreciated that these two were weird, like these two were weird people saying weird things and it was uncomfortable and it was funny and with the the score i would say was very much in control slightly of our tone in the fact that you know we shot the movie the way we did but we tried to bring that score you might have noticed it a few times we tried to bring it in on a scare so the scene where april you know comes in bang bring that score in on that we try to do that and not do like a, I don't know, a James Bond, where it's building, 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 building. You know a scare is coming, so therefore the audience is expecting. We try to get rid of that. Um, and I think that, you know, you've got to let anything that horrific happens, we then have, you've got to have those moments to breathe. I think it's important. If it's all gun-ho, 24-7 for 90 minutes, I think, you can't, what are you saying with that movie? I think, you know, these are real people and they're trying to deal with the situation. And, uh... I think allowing it to breathe, but I, th- I would say the, the score is definitely something that played a big part in the, the tone of our overall movie. In the middle. It's, it is, but it is obviously it's scripted, but it's, it's yeah, it's really powerful. It's just these, you know, these people hadn't heard music before, mm-hmm. and to hear a piece of music like that, um, yeah, it has, it has an effect on all of us, human or non-human. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, no. I, I mean, obviously,
3: yeah,
0: it, it's it is annoying to have to go... You caught, as opposed to what did you catch in that photo? you took? Um, but, but yeah, like everyone's saying, it, it kind of it totally adds to the kind of weirdness of them. And, and even when I did have <coughs> four lines that um, <laughs> it, um, no, I, they, they were all kind of you know very very short, very sort of learnt dialogue that they kind of spent a while watching humans learning and and basically. Kind of try and copy them and, and like you can see in the kind of physical aspects of our performances we're very much kind of copying them and in, in what they do and um yeah uh, i mean yeah i didn't really have to learn anything so <laughs> didn't it make it that difficult can i just really quickly say that that red room yeah julius we call uh, that the grief hole uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean Three days in there, four days, how many was it? <laughs> a lot of days, I didn't even have to go in. But these guys were in that red room for a long, long time. And it was a very small space. And it was a decision that Paul made the DP quite early on in the shoot, he went, wouldn't it be great if all of the stuff in this room was red?
5: <laughs> so that was, that whole stuff was just lit by a single red bulb as wow. well. I mean, I think it was when, yeah, when you shoot moving 11, that it's just, it's hard. You can't over, you can't spend too much time with lighting. No, That's kind of
0: you've just got to get on with, get on with it. Otherwise, you you've
5: got half of you know. And I've always said I'd rather have a whole movie that was, <laughs> <brilliant. Thanks>. uh, <laughs> a whole movie <laughs> that was um, almost like eighty percent great than half a movie that just didn't go anywhere. What can you do with half a movie? So um, yeah, we tried to keep it as simple as, as possible. But um, yeah, that whole red room, grief <laughs> hole, whatever was just literally just fit that on. Let's go, and it was it worked for us that time. A quick third question, Mrs. Blair's right eye. Did that
0: take a lot of work to do? The, um... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Mrs. Blair's right eye. No, uh, that was an amazing special effects made by called Dan Martin, who... Yes, who fed, uh, well, it was a, an airbag fitted to my eye, which was then stuck with all kinds of silicon, um, glues, and then it was a prosthetic... Mold my face so um, they did a silicon like normal life cast of my whole head um, and then made a prosthetic uh, fit to go over the airbag, which was then fit into a a tube behind my ear, went all the way down through my costume out into the side of the shot that you can't see, and it's down off screen literally pumping a bag full of air. So in the in the cut that doesn't have any sound and that's completely like non graded and non-scored you can literally hear <laughs> as the air goes in and out of the prosthetic eye. Um, so yeah, I think I took, I mean I was in makeup for maybe four hours so not too long. would have been if it was both eyes. But yeah, he was amazing. He's very talented. I've worked with him many, many times now and then um, He
1: loves
5: doing stuff like that. Basically, you say to him, Dan, what do you fancy doing next? And he's like, ooh, I'll say to (laughs) my. There's one (laughs) at the back. An Alexa. So we've shot uh, the last three movies. I mean, you hold it. Yeah, sure. Uh, It was an Alexa uh, mini we shot the movie on. we actually and our, uh, for the first time ever I don't know if there's Alexa people in here but our Alexa we bought a brand new Alexa for this film and it broke on day one uh, <laughs> literally just stopped working uh, never happens apparently uh, did um, but they were great they delivered a new one day two but yeah we shot on a, an Alexa
1: what sort of formats that so I'm not
5: a camera expert <laughs> you get that, that one Jeremy <laughs>
0: it's a very <bring>
5: good camera Very <laughs> good camera Shot Skyfall on that? No, so, yeah, uh, shot the, the revenue. Yeah, let's just name films that were shot on it, yeah, make it sound film. good. No, just
1: because it sort of had the quality of 16mm, which again, sort of evokes some of those 70s low-budget movies. Yeah. Yeah. All in the grade. All in the grade.
5: All, the All in the grade, <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. So originally,
5: <laughs> originally, there was a whole sequence in this movie um, where Mr. and Mrs. Blair went to a shop to buy a bar of fudge, Uh, and dropped the budge and there was a whole scene outside of it we we couldn't afford to do it so we just cut it and said oh it's a shop down the road (laughs) there we go that that older demographic Um,
1: are you guys do you have a presence on Facebook Twitter if people have more questions that they want to uh...
5: yeah we're. uh, don't look at me uh, what, what are you, Ruben? I'm in the seventies, so. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, we caught the movie. That's the one. There it is. Ash. Caught the movie. Yeah, cool. So we, we are, and um, thank thank you everyone for coming and staying for the Q yep. and A as well.
1: Court, yeah. yeah. so directed by Jamie Patterson, is available now on video demand services, including Vudu, vud dot where the film can be rented for seven dollars, or you can download a digital copy to keep for ten dollars in standard def, or thirteen dollars in high definition. The Q&A was recorded at Sci-Fi London, London's International Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival, which this year begins on Tuesday, the first of May, at the Stratford Picture House in East London. UK premieres include Defective, Chimera, Nothing Really Happens. Cygnus, The Outer Wild and The Gateway. There's a reunion of the MST3K Libbers for a special screening of Edward's Glen or Glenda and the festival ends with a special Frankenstein film marathon on Monday the 7th of May. You can find more info about Sci-Fi London by going to sci-fi-london.com In tonight's final interview, I'm talking to director and producer Bart Simpson, who has a number of short films and feature-length documentaries under his belt, including producing The Corporation and Mobius Redux, a documentary about the legendary French comic creator, and most recently he's also directed the documentary Brasilia Life After Design. In this feature, Bart looks at how the architect Oscar Neymeyer's Vision for a utopian Brazilian city in the mid 20th century hasn't led to an environment that is quite as utopian for the various people who live and commute in and out of the city while trying to earn a living. The movie combines fantastic views of the cityscape along with insight into the lives of various people who work and live in the city, and as such, presents a fantastic slice of life of a part of the world that isn't that well known. Ahead of its screening as part of this year's East End Film Festival, I spoke to Bart Simpson about the film Brasilia, as well as his various other projects as producer. I guess I first came across your work when The uh, Corporation was released, and it's nice Uh, to be able... Yeah, I hadn't realised until I looked you up that you'd also directed uh, this movie as well, so it's... uh,
6: Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I um uh it's, it's almost God, how many how, how many years has it been for the corp now? I think it's been uh fifteen we released it, about that, yeah, it was like two thousand and four that the technical release was. So mm. that's a long time. But <laughs> good old days yeah well
1: it's it's interesting looking I mean this is your first film as director but looking at your back catalogue as a producer the kind of documentaries that you've produced have been very varied in subject the corporation obviously Mobius Redux which you know tells the story of France's most famous comic book illustrator Bananas all about how uh, poor farmers have to fight against you know the machinations of big companies. So the kind of stories you tell, it's almost like these are stories that are somewhat known, but then you're delving into them deeper so that people can find out more about the subjects that you're looking at.
6: Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're probably right. It's funny because I don't really think about a plan beforehand I just, i'm a bit maybe sp- maybe spastic in terms of what, <laughs> what interests me so maybe in another 10 or 20 years i'll look back and say, what the hell happened but uh in the, in the meantime it's it's been a fun ride
1: yeah indeed yeah yeah i mean looking at um the kind of roles that you've had on films before you became a producer mm-hmm. you've worked in the sound mm-hmm. department you've been a production manager was it always your yeah. aim though to direct and produce
6: yeah, I sort of fell into directing, um, or it fell into producing, um, after film school. I, I, uh, actually I was going to quit film school back in the late nineties. I, I wrote this really bad sci-fi film. that was just, I mean, it was horrible. I mean, I can't even, I had destroyed this moment of crisis with my prof who happened to be a, a documentary, um, filmmaker. Mm. And, uh, he said, well, if you were to make a documentary, what would it be? And I thought of my uncle Max who was a linguist and, um, uh, church chamber choir composer who also believed very passionately that the Old Testament was a recording of um, UFO sightings. <laughs> so uh, he he wrote he wrote for the Flying Saucer Review in London and uh, had a very uh, interesting career in Latin America just after the war in the diplomatic corps. Uh, so basically, it was a it was a short film about how he maybe came to terms with being a devout Christian, but also very strong believer in uh, in alien life and uh, and how that kind of worked for him. Mm. So after that, I kind of caught the documentary bug and, um, you know, found myself in a very, very supportive community and, uh, you know, wanted to learn the business. And I just got this great opportunity with Mark, uh, my former partner, on the, the corporation documentary. And uh, we did a couple of films together. And, you know, then the, the train just kept rolling in that in that area. I don't know. I mean, I think I tend to just get involved in projects that take a long time and, that can be fulfilling at the end of it, but in the middle, it's a real grind. And I think I have to get better at just getting faster, to be perfectly honest, because it's like, <laughs> it's, it's the long hauls are, are You've only got so many of those in you. You know mm. what I mean? Uh, and yeah, I guess I always imagined that I'd, I'd be, um, I, I think moving forward, I, I still love parts of producing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to ever get rid of it, especially when you find a, a good you know, international co-producing partner like uh, Amara at Aconite Productions in Glasgow. But um, I think that, uh, yeah, there's got to be a there's got to be a a happy balance between the both for me.
1: Mm, Indeed. And in terms of being a producer and your relationship with the director who's making uh, the movie, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Does it vary enormously from project to project?
6: Sure, it depends. I mean, sometimes, uh, like for the Mobius Redux film, I came in pretty late in the game. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, of Jazuro's work, uh, mm. and I saw a uh, German team pitch it at Hot Docs, uh, and uh, really wanted to get involved. So um, I, I you know came in on the back end of it. We helped with the editing and uh, and, and the post production. Um, other times. Like with the Corp or with the Banana films, um, it was right at the start and just trying to bounce ideas back and forth and going on research shoots and trying to figure out what the frame of the whole thing was, You know, especially in the case of the Banana, the banana films. And then you know, once the machine is set up, then just making sure that uh, the story is going to be told the way that the director intends it to be told. Mm. And, uh, and also being you know, a, a, the devil's advocate much of the time.
1: In terms of agreeing and disagreeing.
6: Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, been I've been in a ba- I've been in a band for about uh, 20 years and I think that's where I learned most of my collaborative <sighs> and argumentative uh, skills. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah.
1: But but certainly a film like The Corporation, that really felt like it was taking documentary cinema in a new direction. I mean, I dare say there had been other examples before that, but the mixture of uh, infographics, of talking heads, of archive footage that's just being used kind of as illustrative rather than actually showing you what's yeah. happening. That seemed a really potent mix. And I don't recall seeing it in a documentary before being quite as well used or being perhaps such a popular end product.
6: Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, I think I think it's funny because uh, for me, the basis of that film, um, what Mark and Joel were doing, Jennifer were doing was, was very... Uh, it it's classical in a sense because it's it's very much an essay film. There's a point of view and uh, an argument that's being made in a way that you know and, and basically everything is in support of that argument. And um I think that the, the good news or the thing about that film I think that makes it work so much is that it's deceptively simple. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a simplicity in, but a real depth, as you say, and the sort of uh connections that can be made with the archive and, and what you know, the 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 interviews that are happening. Um there's a real debate during the whole filming process, I don't know if you remember, but we uh, used a green screen to do a lot of our interviews and mm. uh, we kind of ripped off the, uh, we ripped off the Errol Morris technique of, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, basically uh, interview subjects speaking directly to camera. Mm. And there was a big debate about uh, what's going to go, what's going to be behind them, what's going to be behind the interview subjects. Mark experimented with a couple of things, but uh, ultimately settled on just a, a simple black background. So it, it for one thing, I think it unifies the, um, the speakers in mm-hmm. a way so you're 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 not really engaging in the same way maybe as, as uh you know assumptions of class and position and all that kind of stuff but also just aesthetically i think it kind of really focuses the audience on what's being said
1: mm. and i suppose looking at your uh, career as a producer in a way mobius seems the Outlier, because all of the other films that you've made have been sort of been looking at downtrodden people, whether they've been abused by corporations or the people in Brasilia who are sort of eking out a living, but it's it's fairly precarious. Mm-hmm. While Mobius, actually, everyone involved is quite successful.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a good point. I think that film, like I say, it's, it's, I came to it as a as a fan of his work, and I think that there's there's um, yeah, it's. I don't know. There's there's something about the way that he saw the future still that I think might have some tie in to the rest of what I'm interested in. You know, especially that his you know his work was heavily borrowed for Blade Runner and, and all that kind of dystopian kind of futuristic vision. Hmm. You know, at the same time, I think that uh, we just got the rights. I'm going to be directing a new film now on um, uh, Harvey Kurtzman, the uh, founder hmm. of Mad. You know, among other things, of course. Um, so, you know, it, it's funny because I think that you're right. When I look back and see what what kind of fuels me in terms of, you know, putting the spotlight on places that interest me for one, and hopefully interest other people, you know, create a dialogue in a way that maybe you know, we don't see in the mainstream too much. I'm still interested in the kind of, you know, weirdos and hmm. uh, art geeks and all that kind of stuff. That's really where I live too. So it's like a, a bit of a line. I mean, I don't know where it's cro- where I cross it, but yeah. What mm. can you say?
1: Yeah. Well, and in a way, I guess, Brasilia, life after design is almost the flip side of a film like Mobius, as it's an architect who had a utopian vision, who actually builds a place, you know, and expects that it will perhaps be inhabited by people who have a wonderful life. But then when you come to it many decades later, the people that you've chosen, at the very least, are only just about eking out an existence in this somewhat dystopian landscape.
6: Yeah, yeah very much so I think that the thing that interested me about it is that when I first started I first went to Brazil by accident in 2004 and uh, it was for a film festival down there where we were showing the corporation and I had this um you know naive vision of what of what Brazil was you know football and uh you know Amazon and favelas and, and samba music and all that kind of stuff only to arrive in Brasilia and realize it was really none of that at least in the way that we know it so, you know, it was like East Berlin dropped in the middle of the desert, and I started to you know, think, well, if I'm going to direct a film one day, that, that is kind of going to require a long time, and, you know, I can learn something about a culture and you know, meet some very interesting people, uh, then this might be it. So uh, I started in 2010 by interviewing uh, Niemeyer before he died. He was 102 at the time, and oh. uh, it was one of the last interviews he ever did, and I can basically we got the rights to do two uh, eight-hour interviews. But by the time I got down there, he was he was too sick. So I ended up getting a grand total of about five or six questions wow. that I kind of sort of eked out to eight. And that part is in the last part of the film. Um, and what he said, I don't want to spoil, but what he said uh, kind of switched my angle on it. And, you know, I didn't know if I was doing the interview for research or for, you know, um, really having him have a real role in it. Uh, but there have been a lot of films about the history of Brasilia, uh, you know, Niemeyer, Lucio Costel, that kind of stuff, and not a lot about the impact of their work on the people who have to live in it. So mm. my hope is that I was going to try and come up with a way to do a, a ground-up urban planning film, like something that would, where you might feel like you're part of the city for a little while. Mm. And it, it's a totally different type of film for me, but, um, you know, it, it was a lot of experimentation and, meeting some amazing people and, you know, having those friendships kind of helped me lead to other areas.
1: Well, I guess it's the vision of Brasilia that he had when he was creating the city is based on that whole sort of trickle-down neoliberal idea that if you build something fantastic, if you create, uh, you know, sort of, amazing well-funded amenities then that will somehow trickle down to the poor people and they will all have a wonderful life but as you show that hasn't happened much at all they're just sort of selling cheap memorabilia and bussing in from the outskirts for up to hours you know
6: yeah yeah in a way I mean I think I think it's more that you know Nehemiah was a communist he came in hmm. at, a, at a, a time just after a, a very brutal dictatorship um or Kubitschek did who was the the uh the president of the time, and he tapped Niemeyer to do the work along with Lucio Costa. And their hope was that, you know, this is a way to break away from the dictatorial and colonial past. And, you know, let's create uh, a, an environment that would produce a new Brazilian citizen. So mm. they wanted to make it as easy for people to live. So that's uh, separating work, home and leisure into different sectors of the city. Uh, their hope was that there would be... You know, all classes would live together, and eventually, that would be there would be no classes as we know them. And um, so, the city kind of started out with that kind of hopeful for them kind of unified vision. But uh, but a couple other things happened. I mean, um, another dictatorship came in. Uh, the design got kind of thwarted, mm-hmm. and ultimately, people kind of chose a different way of life. So, when I talked to Niemeyer he said that Brasilia wasn't his best work, uh, which kind of shocked me at the time because, you know, I mean, being given carte blanche to build a city from scratch uh, for him and, and Lucio Costa was, I mean, probably any architect in a planner's dream. Mm. But um, for him, I think what it was is that as somebody who was very strong in his political ideology, he was disappointed that people didn't follow the path that he was hoping they would follow. Mm. So that's kind of where the that's where the kind of disconnect comes in, uh, for me, because, you know, and ironically when the next dictatorship came in, they found it was very easy to, uh, you know, control things and control the population because the city itself was, you know, really micromanaged in, in that kind of, in that kind of way, mm-hmm. that kind of top down way. Yeah. Uh, so what, so Brasilia to me became about how do you resist it? How do you, how do you live in those restrictions? And, um, you know the people in their twenties and early thirties in particular who grew up in a, in a democracy and you know want to be connected with the world and that kind of thing are trying to find ways to to humanize it mm. so so that's kind of the, you know how do you be human in a city that's ultimately kind of inhuman you know? yeah
1: well it's yeah. interesting how so many architects um certainly in the mid twentieth century had yeah. this utopian vision that if they built these uh, cities that look beautiful on paper that somehow that would lead to enriching lives and you know in the u k sure we had lots of what are now called brutalist housing estates yes right, you know right. that were conceived exactly. of as communities in the sky, but then thirty forty exactly. years later were just crime ridden you know covered in grime and anything but a nice place to live
6: yeah, exactly I think there's a lot of a lot of connection connectivity with that kind of stuff and um you know, then you've also got planned cities like in, in India and Shandigarh and also Canberra and, and Australia, all that kind of thing. And I, there's, um, you know, even up in Scotland, there were some uh, some of the projects up there, I think, really mm. speak to what you were talking about. So, I don't know, it's, it's, like the, it's like the danger of best laid plans, you know what I mean? I, the hope was that something would turn out, but then the combination of people and conditions just show that you really can't plan maybe that tightly. Mm. And expect it to to live on forever um, I think people are are very curious creatures and uh and they end up making decisions that that nobody can really predict Indeed. and uh and, and that's that's kind of the issue
1: mm. in terms
6: of yeah the beauty of it really
1: oh yeah yeah definitely yeah mm. um the people yeah. whose lives that you do depict in the movie you know who you follow on a variety of different days and different conditions, how did you find them uh to start off with?
6: Okay. Well, uh one of the guys we found who kind of ended up being a, a breakout character for us was um was Williams, the uh the uh, vendor salesman. Mm. We were outside we basically but the hope was when I when I first came in to, to do the film, I was thinking of kind of uh you know, representing these different sections, work, home and leisure, mm. you know, traffic with with different people in, in the group. So I sort of had that in the back of my mind and uh I realized I was becoming as dictatorial as the design team for the city, so i just just I just decided to let that filter and flow through and and um just really find people who were trying to find ways to connect and, and to make meaningful connections in the city that's built to divide hmm. so basically with um with William, he's from Rio, so he's kind of got this different sensibility and different energy uh to a lot of other people in the city. And uh, I also wanted somebody to be able to speak about the buildings from a, like I say, a ground up kind of perspective. So somebody who could, you know, uh, explain to somebody on screen, but also the audience, like what the what the cathedral is or what the uh, Plaza of Three Powers is, that kind of idea, mm. uh, in a very kind of you know, roots kind of ground way. And then his story, which I don't want to give away, but it, it really, it, you know, it really kind of took us in a in a completely different direction, which I think is great. Mm. Because you don't want to end up with stereotypical people or present them in stereotypical ways. Um the hope was that you can kind of find the depth, uh the time to have the depth and in, every, in everything. But at the same time, I think it's it's tricky because it's not a character driven film per se. Like it's it's like the city is the main character of the mm. film. So 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 there are some people that you see in the film like Williams who have a very clear, you know, uh path and arc that kind of unfolds. Uh, which has to do with this connecting uh, energy and other people where things happen too, uh, but you don't really get as close to them. So Williams, we found by accident when we were filming the the cathedral, we just wanted to get some B-roll of, of buildings because that's what you have to do in that city. It's so uh, incredible, a lot of the buildings. Um, and uh, Nancy, my co-writer, heard somebody yelling behind us and said, hey, Bard, why don't we go talk to this guy, you know, see if he – much to participate. And, uh, and that's how we found him.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. other
6: people we just found through, you know, meeting friends and I, I lived there off and on. I think I lived there for about a year and a half over okay. about a five year period. Hmm. And, um, you know, just spending a lot of time going to parties and, <laughs> you know, uh, I had my own little old man bar in my gym and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And just t- trying to get into a routine where I would meet people and get to talk about things and see what might happen.
1: Mm. Well, if anything, I mean, the way that you structure the film does feel like the experience of perhaps a flaneur in a city, that someone who's wandering Mm. around, who goes to the tourist area, perhaps buys a souvenir, catches a bus, goes to a festival, hangs out with some people at the festival. So in a way, Mm. it it almost feels like some sort of, you know, accidental journey and the people you might meet on that trip.
6: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's probably true. That's probably very true. Yeah.
1: So this uh, the film is showing in a festival in London. Um, presumably yep. it's um, had similar screenings around the world. What's the feedback yep. been uh, like so far?
6: It's been pretty good. I mean, we've had... Um, I think the first thing that we get back is that it's a film that that people don't generally expect because
3: hmm. uh,
6: for the people who know about Brasilia, and there's, there's a few passionate people who know about Brasilia, but most people don't know what Brasilia is... Um, there's a um a maybe an anticipation that it's going to be something like presented in a way they might have seen before so more of an a, you know a pure historical film or a film with uh you know uh, architects talking about what you know you know how the city's laid out in particular and all the mathematical elements of that but the hope in the edit room was that we would you know have a, information as simple as possible and just as bare minimum information as possible so that it would orient people but if they want to find out more details they can you know, go online and that kind of stuff because the important thing was to like I say experience what it might have been to live there for a while mm. and that that is the feedback that we're getting from people which is nice Great. that it feels like they've visited the city or they've seen a part of they've seen something you didn't expect that kind of idea mm. cool know.
1: okay thank you very much Great. Thank you. Brasilia, Life After Design, directed by Bart Simpson, is showing at this year's East End Film Festival, which began on the 11th of April and continues until the 29th of April at various venues across London. Other movies include The Bromley Boys, showing at the Genesis Cinema on the 21st of April, the new thriller from Fatih Akin, In the Fade, with Diane Kruger, which is showing on the 21st of April at the Curzon Allgate. And of course, Brasilia Life After Design, showing on the 26th of April at Richmix on Bethnal Green Road. The festival concludes on the 28th and 29th of April with screenings at the Castle Cinema on Brooksby Walk in E9, including a documentary on Wax Trax Records and the erotic animated film A Thousand and One Nights. For more information about all East End Film Festival showings, please go to eastendfilmfestival.com. And a couple of Bart Simpson's films as producer, Mobius Redux, screened on the BBC as In Search of Mobius, and The Corporation, are available to watch in standard def on YouTube. The Electric Sheep film show was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a panel boarder's production. You can find all previous episodes at electricsheepmagazine.co.uk-events. And to play out this evening's show, here's another visit to Brazil with the track Waters of March by David Byrne and Marissa Monte. Thanks for listening.
4: A stick, a stone, it's the end of the road It's a little alone, it's a sliver of glass It's a life, it's the sun. It is night, it is death. It's a trap, it's a gun. and the ball
0: This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.